This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. As we uh, take a look at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 tonight, and then, of course, Matthew chapter 10, I want you to take a moment and try to place yourself in this group of 120. I want you to try to think what you would be thinking in that situation, what you would be feeling. Um, And then, of course, I want you to then expand that on to the group of 3,000 who just got saved. And I want you to remember what it was like when you first got saved, when all of a sudden the blinders came off and the gospel of Christ made sense and you prayed a prayer of affirmation to Him and you experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation that comes that you know that you're saved, how His Word just opened up to you. And like Mo was talking about, listening to this um, German pastor preach these long sermons, it just enthralls you, does it not? And it was kind of, it's kind of, kind of like it was with me. And, and the, you know, the Bible was just the Bible and it was a holy book, but it was hard to understand and it was a struggle to study it. And then I got saved. And one of the key things with me that made me realize I was saved is all of a sudden this, this word just drew me in. I mean, it, it was, it was life. And I remember, I don't know, the first six months after I came to Christ, Karen and I'd be sitting on the sofa together and, and I'd be reading this and going, but I, look at this. And, you know, and I'd prepare sermons because I was pastoring again way too early, but I was preparing sermons. She'd be writing down some of the notes. I mean, it was, it was incredible. It was God's word that showed me and convinced me that he was real. But I want you to think about what it must have been like for these people. Acts chapter 2, verse number 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, there, this is the 120, were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. These are the verses we constantly focus on. Holy Spirit comes, mighty wind, speaking in tongues, try to determine what exactly that means, Holy Spirit giving them utterances, these cloven tongues of fire, and we all focus on that. I think the most powerful verse in the first part of Acts is the very next verse, which is verse number 5. And it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, not Christians, but Jews, committed Jews, devout men, it said, from every nation under heaven. Like we talked about on Sunday, this was the Feast of Pentecost. It was after the spring feast. It was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. It was, it was the second of three 
of the feast that the Jewish males were required to attend. And so you've got just not carnal Jews or casual Jews. You have committed Jews that have traveled from all over the empire to come to Jerusalem to participate in this feast. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. And again, it says devout men. These were, these were committed men. These were men that... Um, that were there for a reason. They had no intention of hearing about this Jesus. They had no intention of abandoning their faith. They were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And when this feast was over, they were going back home. They were heading back to where they came from. And, and if you want to know where they came from, you'll find uh, at least 11 places listed beginning in verse number 9. They were from Parthia, they were from the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, from the Elamites, they were from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. They were from Pergia and Pamphylia, which is north of the Mediterranean Sea. They were from Egypt, uh, which is to the west of them, parts of Libya. They were from Cyrene, visitors all the way from Rome. They were both Jews and proselytes. There were Cretans and Arabs. All of these people were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit fell. Peter then stood up in a crowd that was not necessarily open to him. doesn't say that it was super hostile at this time, but, but again, these people were drawn by the sound and drawn by the miracle of hearing this other Jews proclaim the wonderful works of God, it says in verse number 11, in their own dialect. And all of a sudden they come to hear what's going on. Peter preaches this, as I shared with you, 297-word sermon, excluding the Scripture verses, and he's very confrontational at the end. Verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, very confrontational, both Lord and Christ. And then the Holy Spirit did its work. The Holy Spirit did His work. He began to convict them. He began to draw those to Him which He had chosen. Not all of them got saved, but some of them did. We know 3,000 people of this rather massive crowd came to faith in Christ. It says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And we talked about this on Sunday. It means to be pierced or stabbed. It's to be greatly pained or deeply moved for the guilt, the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The guilt of this Jesus is upon us. The guilt of our sin is upon us. What can we do to alleviate ourselves from this guilt? Peter said to them, repent. I have a total change of mind about you, about your righteousness, about your sin, about Christ, about everything. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. As I shared with you, baptism was something that was not favored with the Jews. It's what they did to a Gentile proselyte. So for them to be baptized was almost to do something that the Jews found offensive. Doesn't matter to be baptized, and it says, and you will receive not eternal life, not the peace that passes all understanding, not Jesus who is closer to us than a brother. That wasn't communicated. Now you'll receive what we received. You'll receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the same Spirit that has allowed this uneducated fisherman 
to come up and preach this incredible sermon quoting from Joel and from the Psalms and, and other passages. For the promise, not of eternal life, but the promise of the Holy Spirit, which again is the sign of eternal life, is to you and to your children, to the Israelis I'm speaking to, and to those who are far off, which would be the Gentiles, and to as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, showing God sovereign in salvation. And it says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved or save yourself from this wicked and perverse and crooked and foul generation. The same message that we would say a holiness pastor would preach today are the same message that really every pastor should be preaching today, to be saved from the decadence of the society in which we live. And much of that decadence is even found in the professing church today. But you know that's true. Then those, not all, but those, who gladly received his words. This is the rejoicing that you were talking about. They gladly received his words. Not everybody, but those who did uh, gladly received his words. And, and again, he exhorted them with, with many different words for probably quite a long time, maybe explaining to them what it meant to be saved. Once you get saved, you will find that this world is no longer your home. Once you get saved, you will find that the people in your entire household will end up being your enemies. Once you get saved, you'll realize that you have an enemy now, and you have a bullseye on your chest, and your enemy runs around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he has his sights on you. Once you get saved, you will find that the Jews of which you're a part of will try to destroy you and stamp you out and try to crush you and they will chase you from city to city. And when you are brought up to them after being kicked out of their synagogues, when you're brought up between kings and rulers, don't worry about your defense because this Jesus that you have just been introduced to, that you know nothing about, will give you the very words to speak in that hour in which you have to make a defense. Remember all the things Jesus talked about? Maybe, maybe they heard all this, but whatever they heard, they received it with joy and gladness. They counted the cost and they realized that the guilt of my sin is so great on me that whatever I can do to alleviate that guilt, it is worth it. Because my life is finite and eternity lasts forever. And it says, in that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And as I shared with you, as I shared with you uh, Sunday, the question is, church was born at that time? What now? Now we've gone from 120 who are meeting in an upper room for 10 days, prepared to stay longer, probably fasting during that time. They're up in the upper room. Now all of a sudden, the 120 is multiplied to there's over 3,000 of them some of them from Jerusalem, some of them probably from all these other providences that we don't know much about them. Some may have come from Egypt. Some may have come from Cyprus or Cyrene. Some may have come all the way from Rome. And now all of a sudden they're part of the body. Now all of a sudden they're part of us. They've just got saved. We've just baptized them in some massive baptism service. And now they're looking at us going, now what? What? what um, what do you what do you mean? Um, what do you mean now? What we're here? We're one of you. We, we've accepted the call of Christ. He's changed my life. He's he's turned me into something brand new. I want to hear more about this Jesus. I'm I'm in here for the long haul. I've been changed. 
If what you said is true, Peter, then you're now my brother and I'm now your brother. And all my other relationships are just transitory, but this relationship is permanent. Think it went home? No. To what? I mean, to what? They got saved. They got changed. And the thing that mattered to them, remember, they gladly received His Word. The thing that mattered to them was learning more about this Christ. If, if I was here from Rome... And all of a sudden, I was there on Pentecost morning, and I'm one of the 3,000, and I got saved. If I go back to Rome, I'm the only person in Rome that has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? The only person there. And all of the darkness, I'm the only light. And I'm a zygote when it comes spiritually. I don't know nothing about nothing. Well, who is this Jesus? I don't know. I mean, I heard Peter's message and those 297 words and a couple passages from the Old Testament is all I know. I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't learned about his teaching. I don't know anything about the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know what's expected of me. Who's going to disciple me? No one, because there's nobody there. And the idea is that it's like, it's like sending a, you know, a missionary off who's nine years old to go to Haiti and proclaim the gospel. I mean, it, it, nobody does that. And so the idea is the fact that most of them probably stayed. Well, who, uh, who fed them? I don't know. Who fed the disciples? You ever wonder how they supported themselves for three and a half years? I mean, there's 12 of them, plus there's Jesus, plus there's some of the other people like, like uh, Ananias and, and Matthias and some of the others that have been there since the baptism of John. There's some of the ladies that are there. We know Mary, for example, supported Jesus from some of her own wealth. Maybe her husband died and it was inheritance or something of that nature. But then we had an entourage of people who's following Christ because if you remember, Jesus called all his disciples together, prays all night, comes down and out of that group chooses 12. So there has to be a, a number greater than 12, 50, 100, 200. I mean, who knows? There's this group that's following Christ. We find that in John chapter 6 that Jesus talks about the fact that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have part of me because he talks about being the bread of heaven and my, my flesh is real meat and my blood is real drink. And at that part, point, it says many of his disciples followed him no longer. And he turned to the 12 and goes, well, what are you going to do? Well, you, you have the word of eternal life. We're, we're sticking with you. So there's, there's an entourage that's going with them. I mean, who fed them? What, Jesus? I mean, did he have, you know, food carried in? Did he fund all this himself? There was a, a missionary society that was supporting him. Did he, I mean, how did that happen? Then he lived by faith. I mean, he fed 5,000 people with a, Kids sack lunch. Don't you know he could do the same thing every day with them? I mean, every time I, I, I'm thinking about last chapter in John where Peter goes out and he throws the net in and all of a sudden on the other side of the boat and all of a sudden it's about to break and Peter realizes it's Christ. He jumps in the water and swims to Jesus. The other guys pull the net ashore. They count the fish. There's 153 fish sitting on the, they're flapping and Jesus has got coals and he's eating before them. You remember when he restored Peter and all that kind of stuff and I mean, 153 fish, that feeds some, feed some people for a while. I'm sure they gave it to the entourage, you know, the people that are there. And I think Jesus worked miracles like that all the time. Hey, uh, is it uh, lawful for your master to pay the poll tax? Um, Peter, the hassling about that, huh? Well, listen, I'll tell you what. So that we don't have offense to them, why don't you throw your hook 
your hook. Not a net, but your hook in the water and pull out a fish, reach in the mouth of the fish, find out two coins, it's for my tax and your tax. You remember that? I mean, he obviously had somehow been teaching them to live by faith. The exact opposite of we do, what we do. When we get ready to send a missionary overseas, again, this isn't about 99% of the time. There are certain mission boards that don't do it this way. But what happens, if I wanted to be a missionary, um, you know, I would have to go on deputation to all these various churches and have to pitch my, um, I think you're, they had to do this, I had to pitch who I am to them, and, and then they would decide, well, we'll take you on for $100 a month or $500 a month or $300 a month, and then the sending board will determine what the minimum amount of money I have coming in has to be each month, and then they will allow me to go overseas, and then when I come back, I have to go back to those various churches and kind of report to them and, and all that kind of stuff, and you can't go on the mission field until you get the money first. What a, that's exactly the opposite of the way Christ did it. It's exactly the opposite, I think, of the way they lived. It's definitely the opposite of how the early church lived in the book of Acts. Look at, um, look at, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Let me just show you something here. Jesus, I think, is beginning to teach them on how to live by faith. And as I shared with you Sunday from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, faith is defined this way. It says, now faith is the substance or the foundation of the basis of things that are hoped for. And that means, of course, supreme expecting confidence. It is the evidence or the proof or the conviction of things that we can't even see because it's based on faith. And why is it important? Because Hebrews 11.2 says, for by it, faith, the elders obtain a good testimony. And the rest of that chapter just deals with these giants of faith who trusted without seeing both to the Old and New Testament. So Jesus has got his disciples together. And Jesus says, all right, you know, I've, it's been a year now, a little over a year and a half, and I have, uh, I've shown you how you're supposed to live. I have met all your needs. I have taken care of you. We have gone through the grain field and been fed by, by uh, just taking some of the grain that, that we can glean has been left behind. I have multiplied loaves and fishes. I have calmed the sea. I have healed lepers. I even healed a, a centurion's servant. I've, I've done all these kind of things in front of you. I've never asked anybody for anything because God and the Holy Spirit empowers all of this. And I want you to learn by doing. I don't want this just to be a classroom kind of deal, just the stuff that I do. I want you to learn what it's going to be like when I'm taken away from you. As long as I'm with you, I can do all these things, and you're a beneficiary of that. If I'm with Christ and I'm hungry, and he multiplies loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000 people, I get fed too. Then they collect all the stuff together, and there's 12 baskets left over, so we get fed the next day, and probably the next day, and the next day after that. As long as I'm with Christ, my needs are being met. But Jesus, all during this time He's on earth, is preparing them to live without Him. The day will come when I will be ascended into heaven, and when I am, then I will send to you another, the Holy Spirit, who will be in you. And Jesus says, it is better for you that I am taken into heaven, because if I'm not, then you won't receive the Holy Spirit who will be within you always. In other words, there's, there's no locality to this. He's going to be with you, in you always, so that if you're not with me, you still have me in you. 
I don't know what that means, Lord. I don't, I don't know how that works. Can you explain it to me? Sure. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, this is out of the entourage that's following him, of which were also disciples, he gave them something that he didn't give the others. He gave them power. And uh, the word here is not dudamos. It's not power, explosive, miracle-working power. The power here is the zosia. It's authority power. He's giving them power over unclean spirits. You now have power over them to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. You did not have that power before, but since I'm sending you out, I want at this particular time, in this particular setting, since I'm not going to be with you, I want to give you an on-the-job training of what it's going to be like when the Holy Spirit comes. I'm not with you, but you're not going to be orphans. I will come to you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to give you the power that I have, give you the presence that I am, and you're going to have it for a season. It hasn't fallen permanently. That doesn't come into Acts chapter 2, but he gives them a taste like a first fruit of what life's supposed to be like. Now the name of the 12 apostles. Well, First they're called disciples, now they're called apostles. Why? Because apostles mean sent one. He's getting ready to send them out. It says the twelve of the apostles are these, to differentiate from everybody else. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve he sent out, Again, this word is apostle here, and commanded them. And here's what he says. This is, this is how the early church existed. Here's what he said. I'm going to send you out, but uh, I want you to trust me explicitly. Do you remember, he probably told them, just a few chapters, we say a few chapters earlier, he would probably say several months earlier, when I preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when I laid out for everybody exactly what the kingdom of God was like? And I told you not to worry about what you eat, drink, wear, or your body or your life or what's going to happen. Because if you worry about those things, you can't change anything. You can't change your hair from black to white. You can't make yourself taller or smaller. You can't control the circle. You can't do any of that kind of stuff. So I told you not to worry about any of those things because God takes takes care of things of less value than you, like the lilies of the field and like the birds uh, of the heavens. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just sum this all together in Matthew chapter 6 and tell you that if you seek first the kingdom of God, that's your job, that all these other things that we worry about will be not given to you, but added to you, added to what you already have. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of himself. So I want to send you out, and I want you to learn to just trust me. Okay. Okay. And because I'm going to force you to trust me, here's some of the rules I'm going to give you. Verse 5. Don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. You guys are young. You still have your prejudices. You're still Jews to the core. The Holy Spirit has not resided in you permanently. You still struggle with the Jew-Gentile thing all the way into the middle of the book of Acts. So there's no need to go somewhere and have this racial racial prejudice just blow up in your face and give Satan a foothold. So you know what? Don't go there. Instead, 
verse 6, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to people just like you. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message John the Baptist preached. That's the message Jesus began preaching. That's the same message I want you to preach. You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Just preach that message. But I want you to authenticate that message with the same things that I do. Because when the Holy Spirit is communicating this about this kingdom of heaven that we're asking people to become part of when they embrace who Christ is, then all of a sudden there's a, a different dynamic. There's a different reality. We're not living by the rules of this world. We've trans been translated from this world into His kingdom, and so therefore things are going to happen supernaturally. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now resides within you. I am giving you my authority. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to heal the sick. What? Yeah, I want you to heal the sick. I, I, um, I, I can't heal anybody. Exactly. Exactly. But I want you to heal the sick. In my name, at my will, with my authority. Well, Lord, only you heal the sick. No, actually, uh, if you remember correctly, in Acts chapter 3, we have Peter and John going to the temple to worship and pray at the normal time, and they see this man has been lame for years and years and years, and everybody kind of steps over and ignores and doesn't give him alms. And you remember, you remember the story. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. We have... Peter is there, and a guy falls out of the, or, or not, uh, Peter, Paul, he, he falls out of the second story window. He's dead. Paul comes, lays on top of him. Guy comes back to life. Paul goes back to preaching. You know, he's preaching in this big crowd. He looks out there and sees this man that uh, has faith to be healed. And he says, Well, why don't you stand up? I, I can't stand up. And he says, In the name of Jesus Christ, oh, people are getting healed all the time. So much so that Peter's shadow would pass upon some of those and they would be healed. And Paul was so busy ministering that they would take sweat rags from him and take it from Paul and go to people who were getting healed, and they would get healed. Well, what do you mean people can't get healed? People get healed all the time in the book of Acts. They just don't get healed today. Gosh, I wonder why. I wonder if it's God. I wonder if it's us. Heal the sick. Cleanse the leper. That means you get your hands dirty. That means uh, you've got to go out and touch things that are disgusting, touch things that nobody wants to touch. I, I've got to go to the unclean people, which means everybody else is going to think I'm unclean, but I don't live for their praise anymore. I just live for His. And I have to reach out and, like Jesus did and cleanse the lepers. And worse than that, I'm to raise the dead and cast out demons. Now, you're one of the 12. Jesus had, has paired you up with Thomas. You know what I mean? Thomas. I oh, ain't going to work. This is crazy. We're going to starve. You know, going to go out there. And I, well, what was he, what was he talking about? First time I get ready to raise somebody from the dead and nothing happens, I mean, they're going to stone us. They're going to think we're false prophets. They're going to run us out of the city. I'm like, I need you to go. And this is the power I'm giving you. Look, you saw me do it. And you've wondered how I did it. I did it by the power of God that was resting in me. I have just given you that authority, which will come to you permanently in the person of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But I'm giving it to you now temporarily as on-the-job training to live by faith. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Well, uh, how much do I charge for this? Nothing. Freely you have received, freely given. So what in your life have you received from Christ that you had to pay for? 
Nothing. It was all paid for. It was given to us as a gift. And if you've been given that gift, then give that gift to others. Okay. All right. We'll do that, Lord. But how long are we going to be gone? Oh, at least a chapter. You know, quite a, quite a while. Well, what are we going to do for food? No, 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 no. I, I don't want you to go to the store and buy some food. I don't want you to get a fistful of gift cards. I don't want you to, don't, don't, don't do any of that kind of stuff. Verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belt. I want you to go out broke. I want you to go out destitute. I want you to put you in a situation where you cannot rely on your own resources at all. The only thing you can rely on is me. Because it's not your faith in others that is on trial here. It's your faith in me. Whether I'm willing to meet your needs, whether my words are true, whether you can trust me. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. Why? For the worker is worthy of his food. The worker will be fed. It's the Father's job to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God that I described to you and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. Isn't that amazing? And I won't, I won't bother reading the rest of this, but these are all... the teaching that he gave them when he sent them out. Talks about persecution is going to come. But don't worry about persecution. You'll be given the words to speak at, at the right time. He, he talks about the fact that whatever I tell you in the dark, proclaim it from the housetop. Don't, don't worry about other people. Do not fear what men can do to you. And the a sparrow does not fall to the ground without my father's knowledge. And you are of far more value than they are. You confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father, but if you falter and deny me before the men, I will deny you before the Father. It's going to be tough. I don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Members of your own household will be your enemy because the kingdom I'm talking about transcends earthly relationships. And on and on and on. And he sent them out. I think the amazing thing is on this on-the-job training is when they come back, they rejoice. If you remember that the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. They didn't rejoice. God, you met all our needs. Miraculously, we were always fed. We went to a town and, and miraculously, like you planned it, God, somebody would walk up and ask us to stay with them and they took care of our needs and we blessed that man before, before we left and of course, I'm going before you. But as, as marvelous as those things were, people raised from the dead, lepers healed, uh, the, the thing that marveled them the most was the power of the name of Christ against the demonic presence that they suffered. Just like church today, right? This is how these guys were trained. This is how, uh, this is how the disciples lived. This is what Jesus was teaching them to do. The only time we ever find Peter ever going back fishing, back to his old lifestyle that Jesus called him from, Jesus really rebuked him for that. Peter, do you love me more than these 153 fish, your old life, the things that once gave you satisfaction? Feed my sheep, Peter, my sheep. What we do today, me too, is we embrace Christ and we have Him season our life and make our life better. We've still determined the course that we want to take. I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, be a CPA, be a fireman, be a police officer, 
you know, be a stay-at-home mom, be a teacher. I, I'm determining my vocation. I'm going to determine the house that I want to build and, and all that. I'm asking God to help me get the loan or cars I want to drive. We even determine how many kids we want. You know, I only want to have two kids. Well, I know, but the Lord says he opens and closes the womb. I don't know, but I don't want to be like Lindsay and have like five kids in five years. Um, I just, I'm, I'm going to control my own family. I just want 2.2 kids. You ever met that point two? You know, it's just my call. Just, I'm in charge. And, and God, I, I surrender my life to you, but I'm asking you to bless my decisions. What I want to have happen. And that's not the way these guys lived. I mean, if you'll turn back to Acts chapter 2, you'll find that these guys, um, these guys came to Christ, and they probably didn't even go home. And they may have sold their assets and just lived there in Jerusalem. They may have been part of this, this growing church because the only thing that mattered to them was not going back and funding our 401k or paying my house off or getting that big promotion in the corner window and office and all that kind of stuff. Whenever I give examples like that, I always default back to my CPA days and the corner office with the windows was the big office. You know what I mean? So if some people in the medical profession, it, that means something totally different to them, but they didn't care. They just wanted to know Christ, nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we've got this group of people that the early disciples are probably teaching them. doesn't say verbally. There's, this is not commands that are going out here, but we're showing them by example, the 120, how they learned to live with Jesus, how they learned to survive this three and a half years with Christ. Do you realize that if we, um, that if, if Jesus came today and he walked in here and he said, um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, and half of us decided to follow Christ. Uh, let's say this half, nothing personal. This half decided we're going to follow Christ and uh, you know, to be his disciples and leave. Do you realize that meant we went where he went? That means you don't go back to work tomorrow. You know, I don't, I don't what am I supposed to, I don't, I'm not even around my house anymore. I mean, Jesus is heading this way, and after he spends a couple of days in Gastonia, man, he's heading into Charlotte. After Charlotte, he's heading up to Raleigh. And after, who knows where he's going? Well, who knows when he's going to come back? And I mean, I got, I got bills to pay, not anymore. Man, I got a house to take care of, not anymore. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to give everything to me. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, oh, here comes this rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes up and says, Lord, I will follow you. Well, it's great. We'll just go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Come follow me. And I'm not willing to do that. Everybody else has. You know, and then there's the teaching in here where the people come to us and, and uh, you know, Jesus talks about everybody who gives up cars. He didn't say cars, but houses and land and stuff like that will get even more in the kingdom of heaven and even here on earth. And the disciples say, well, look what we've given up, Lord. We've given up everything. And they had. I mean, I don't know if Peter had a home to go back to. I don't know if James and John's business with, with their father was. I know Matthew's tax collecting business was done. And if he couldn't fund his lifestyle, he had to sell his big place where he had the parties at. I mean, it was, it was done. But it didn't matter because they were all following Christ. Now, we don't view him that way. We don't function that way. And the thought of doing that is almost crazy because we get these flashbacks of Charles Manson and, you know, his little group of helter-skelter people and the communes and how terrible that was during the 60s and the Tate and LeBlanca murders. And so we don't want anything to do with that kind of stuff. Plus, it means a, it means a, 
a deep commitment to Christ and a deep commitment to each other that is never preached from any pulpit I've ever listened to, ever, ever. It's just come, join, be part of us, go your way. Do your thing out there with the grace of God. Then we come back and do our thing. Then you go do your thing. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what, what Christianity is today. It's pretty much what Christianity has been for 16, 1,600 years. But that's not how it originally was. But watch what happens. Acts 2.42. You're part of this 3,000 now, and you have come to faith in Christ. I was talking to Karen about this, and Karen says, man, these people must have had a revival in their life. These people must have been fired up. I mean, they must have been on a spiritual high. Uh, no, they were newbies. They had just got saved. There was no revival in their life because they hadn't been down yet. There wasn't this spiritual high they're on, unlike their normal Christian life, because this is all they knew. The same Christ that saved me is the same Christ that saved them. The same transformation that took place in me is the same transformation that took place in them. But their response to that transformation is far different than mine. It's far different than yours. It's far different than any church or any Christian I have ever known or read about in the West ever. We view it as something that seasons our life. They viewed it as their life. Look what it says. And they, this is the 3,000 plus the 120, maybe there were some that scurried off. They continued steadfast. It means to be devoted, to persevere, to not faint. Now, you don't understand. Every time the word of God is spoken, I, I want to be there. I mean, I don't care what's on television. I don't care about the, the ball games that are being played. I don't care about planting my garden or mowing my lawn or going on vacation. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. I don't want to hear more about this Christ. The one thing that they obviously have that somehow maybe we don't is they had a hunger for his word that was insatiable. I, I, I couldn't be satisfied. I want more and more and more. And for us, it's you preach longer than an hour, except for this guy in Germany. Preach longer than an hour. And um, I mean, <laughs> really, I really appreciate you guys because you don't understand that um, there are very few churches who will put up with a pastor who preaches over an hour. I mean, John MacArthur does every time he preaches, but most sermons are 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And that's pretty much it. You got 20 minutes of calisthenics. You know, you get some light show. You got some really neat movie clips. He gets up and preaches for 20, 25 minutes. You got to be out the door in an hour because we got another group coming in for the same thing. And an hour and a half later, we got another group coming in. But these people were devoted to the Word of God. I, I just can't get enough. I, I just want to know what it says and what it means and how it's to change my life. This relationship I have with Christ that changed me. I was dead and now I'm raised to a newness of life. You have it too. And, and tell me what your relationship is like with Christ because let me tell you about mine. And there was this, this change that took place. Unlike church like I've, I've known my whole life. And, and I'm, not, I'm not blaming church. I mean... Pastors preach what they've been taught and what they've experienced, and, and pretty soon you have this kind of generational thing that rolls on and rolls on, and anything that steps outside of those, 
those safe boundaries that we have makes us all feel uncomfortable. And, and you know how it is. But it wasn't like that for them guys. It says they, can, they were devoted, they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. I don't want to know more about Christ. I want to, I want to know more about this. I'm, I want to. You know, I want to come on Sunday. I want, let's get together on Sunday night. I'll come to your house on Monday and let's talk about Christ. You come to my house on Tuesday. Let's talk about Christ. We'll all go to Levi's house on Wednesday. Let's talk about Christ. And then we'll go to we'll go somewhere during the day. We're going to go out to the temple where the Jews are and tell them about Christ. I mean, nothing else matters. Well, wait a second. Well, what about your debt? What about your car? What about your job? What about, what about maintaining your lifestyle? I don't care about that. If I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will take care of all my needs. I don't fret over my needs. I fret over my wants. Don't you? Because there's a huge difference between a need and a want. I need a car. Okay, how about this one? I don't want to drive that car. It has fallen apart, and radio doesn't work, and air conditioning doesn't work. And I, I, need a, I need a really nice car. Well, why? Because that's what my culture says I'm entitled to. Well, that's a want. I know, but we live for our wants. I do. I mean, my, my biggest financial mistakes and burdens in my entire life have nothing to do with needs. They have to do with wants. You know, I'm... Well, I need a house. It needs to be 4,000 square feet. What, for you and your wife and one kid? Yeah. You know, I remember Kevin Swanson talks about that, that we sacrifice our kids by husband going out to work and wife was having to work to be able to fund sheetrock. It's just sheetrock. More house that we can't live in because we want to be comfortable. It's not how they lived back then. So they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, and teaching and tutoring and mentoring. One of the most amazing passages for me is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is talking to the church there about the coming of the Antichrist. Do you remember that? He, and, and they were confused because Paul had been there. He stayed three weeks, three weeks, four tops and got chased out because of persecution, or he left because he didn't want them persecuted. He went to another city. He wrote back to see how they were doing. And then he wrote back a second letter because he had heard that they were struggling because some of their members had died and they thought that the day of the Lord had already come and they'd been taught wrong. And so Paul starts telling him about the day of the Lord and the coming of the Antichrist with all these false miracles and all that kind of stuff. And then he makes the phrase, don't you remember I told you that when I was with you? In three weeks, in three weeks, Paul had taken them from kindergarten to graduate school. I mean, that didn't happen just on Sunday and Wednesday night. I mean, he was there with them teaching. And don't you remember I told you about all those things, graduate level stuff when I was there? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And here's the key. The word fellowship here is koinonia. And it doesn't mean Really what we do tonight after we eat, we're going to have a fellowship where we get together and, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Eat a meal and you know, have a good time and kind of catch up. This fellowship was more like two people going together in business as a partnership. It means a, it means a community. It's a family. It's a partnership. It's a fiduciary responsibility that they have. Gil and I decided to go into business together. And in order for us to go into business together, I've got to sell everything I have, and Gil has to sell everything he has. We have to pool the money together in a 50-50 equal partnership to be able to make this business work. 
I am all in. Everything I have is, is tied up in this, and everything Gil has is tied up in this. I mean, I know Gil's sacrifice is just as great as mine, and you know, he's got a family, and I've got a family, and he's got responsibilities, and I have responsibilities, but we bonded together in a koinonia kind of partnership for a common goal to make this business work. And I'm sacrificing as hard as I can, and he's sacrificing, and when he's hurt or he's down, I'm filling in, and when I'm down, he's filling in, because we're together as one, because there's this joint participation together in a goal that's bigger than each of us. That's what the word fellowship means. I mean, in the church, we kind of lost that, because coming to church costs us nothing. Really, getting saved didn't cost us anything. We can live just as carnal and just as lazy and just as you know, apathetic as we were beforehand, and nobody ever confronts us on it. Nobody really says anything about it. We come to church and we fellowship and have a good time and go back and do our own thing, and nobody really bothers us about it. It's a, it becomes kind of a spectator club sport, but not here, not with these guys. I mean, these guys from Rome and from Egypt and from Libya, I mean, they were all in. The Jews, the 120, they had been all in for a while. I mean, they probably didn't even have homes. Yeah, come on, we'll find a place to live and we'll work this thing out and God will meet our needs. Everybody's pitching in. Everybody's for the common goal. God is the God of all of us. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Some people believe that breaking of bread is actually the act of communion. And it, it could mean that, or it could just mean in, in eating their meals together. Because later we're going to find out it says that they ate their meals together with, with sincerity of heart. And they devoted themselves to prayer. God, tell us what to do. What's your will for us? And I mean, this is, this is the church made up of relative strangers. You got the 11. You got uh, two guys that have kind of one guy that kind of joined that group. You've, you've got some of the, the women that are there. You've got a 120, and some of those people have been with Jesus maybe a while, some of them not so long. Then you've got another 3,000 that have been added to that group, and, and who knows where all those people came from. They're all ex Jews, but they're devoted Jews, and there's a lot of questions they've got in their minds, such as, well, do we still. Do we still observe the law now that we're under Christ? I mean, Paul had to deal with that in the book of Galatians. I mean, do, do we still, do we have to become a Jew first and get circumcised before we become a Christian? I mean, that was the Jerusalem council to, to deal with that with the Gentiles. And, and they're all committed together. And what happened? It says, then fear. This is profound reverence and honor and respect. Literally, it means dread and terror. Fear came upon every single soul. Oh, oh my gosh, this, this, is, this is God. I mean, God has done this. God has done incredible things, and He's called me into a relationship with Him, and He's saved me. And, you know, it's, my whole life has been changed. Not, not kind of how we do it today. Hey, I, uh, I, got, I got saved last week. Hey, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really good, and I prayed a prayer, and I kind of felt better, you know, and sounded a little lighter, and, and it was good. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian now. Well, back then, Jews hate you. If you had a job working for a Jew, you ain't got that job no more. The fact is that, that if you had family members who were still Jews, they rejected you just like most family rejected him when he became a Christian. It was a different mindset here. Fear, this profound reverence of God, wanting to serve him with everything, came upon every single one of them. And many signs and wonders were done to the apostles. The word wonders has to do with miracles. 
people healed, lives changed, lame walk, foods multiplied, water to wine, all that kind of stuff. Those are, those are wonders. Signs are the same thing, but they're attesting to the validity of the gospel message. In other words, it's, it's the same kind of miracle, but it, it, it attests or points to something beyond the miracle itself. In other words, if a miracle took place and someone said, wow, that was fantastic, that'd be a wonder. If the same miracle took place and said, that's God, God is real, that's a sign. Make sense? And so you had both of those taking place. Miracles probably among themselves, signs among the lost that are out there pointing to the fact that the Christ is who he said he is. These same signs and miracles, I think, that the disciples did when God gave them authority and told them to go raise the dead and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers. And it says, and they were done to the apostles. The apostles means sent ones. It doesn't necessarily mean the twelve. If it was the twelve, as we talked about two weeks ago, it would have said the twelve. Well, how did the church function? How did, they, how did they live? Just like the disciples lived. Just like Jesus had probably been teaching them for three and a half years. Now all who believed, who had faith and trust, were together and had all things in common. They had all things corporately together. Now, we look at this and go, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, can you, can you tell me, give me a little more detail what it means about having all things in common? Sure. It says, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had, not wants, but needs. But we would never do that. Never. Because it's unfair. It's unfair for a guy who makes $200,000 to sell everything that he has, who's worked 60 or 70 hours a week before he came to Christ, and put it in a pot to fund the guy over here who's a bum, that uh, you know, doesn't work at all, that hadn't done anything. You know, it's like... like doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, th th that's unfair. As a matter of fact, we're enabling that guy's slothfulness. And so we can't do that. If, if we're going to show him that diligence and hard work pays off, then he needs to work, and I need to work, and I will show him by the amount of money that I make, my 200 grand, that he could be like me if he would work as hard as I can. And that's the way we think in our culture, do we not? And that's the way it functions in church today. Because this radical transformation that turns the bum into the hardworking guy for Christ and turns the guy who's already hardworking to channel that into his time for Christ, for some reason that transformation took place to them back then, but we don't allow it to take place in us today. And I don't know why that is. You know, I, I don't know why that is. They sold their possessions and they divided among all as anyone had need. Now, granted, you had people, when they saw this little communal kind of family that they had, you had people that would come in and try to draw from the system. They are the takers. Because later on in the New Testament, the statement is given, if a man doesn't eat, man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So you had freeloaders. They had to deal with those freeloaders. You had the first big fight that the church had had to do with the daily distribution of food. And you had the, the widows of the... Hellenistic Jews, the, the uh, Gentile or the Greek Jews were getting slighted 
racially by the Hebrew Jews in the distribution of food. And the church came together, Peter and the rest of them, and says, you know, we're not going to sit here and dish out food. Choose for yourself seven men that we can put in charge of this. Let them handle that. We're going to continue proclaiming the word and praying. Remember all that? So you, you had problems with this even from the beginning. But the reality was, this is how they functioned. They sold their possessions in good and divided them among them all as anyone had need. Do you trust anybody enough to do that? you trust a family member enough to do that? I mean, we don't even, general statement here, we don't even take care of our own loved ones. If, um, if, I have a, if I have a career and my wife has a career and we're pretty busy and making money and doing the stuff we have to do, and my mother, of course, needs some hands-on care, my mother gets Alzheimer's or something of that nature, it is, it is not often that a, a person curtails their lifestyle, gives up their job to bring the mother into the house and be a full-time caregiver. You know what I mean? It's, that's just really not done. What you did with your aunt was, you just don't find that happening that often. I mean, that's, it just doesn't. What we do is we're going to work really hard and pay for them to get better care at the nursing home. You know what I mean? Because we, we, we can't have it interfere with our life kind of deal. And that's why... Um, Robert McQuilkin, who was the president of CIU, uh, what he did with his wife Mur Muriel made such a profound impact on my life. He's in the middle of the height of his career. He's the president of Columbia International University. Uh, he's the second president. His father was the founder of that. And his wife Muriel came down with an Alzheimer's disease, a terrible disease, and she was absolutely terrified whenever he wasn't around. And, and so he resigned as president of a Christian university, well, what about the ministry? What about serving God and decided to stay home with her and take care of her until she passed away? Because he said that she was in fear and dread whenever he wasn't around. Well, that was a great thing for him to do for 11 years. For 11 years. And he talks about the time that, that it was difficult. I mean, she would... This is his wife, and she would go to the bathroom, and she would defecate on the floor, and she'd be playing with it. I mean, it was, a, it was a horrible situation. He would be there. He said he slapped her leg one time for doing that, and it just, it just broke his heart for doing it. I mean, she was gone. And she, everybody would have justified him putting her away, but it would have caused her pain. And what he said in his farewell speech at, at CIU, and I played a little clip of that a couple years ago here, was the fact that she sacrificed for me to have my life, and I will sacrifice for her to have hers. I mean, that, that's how Christians are supposed to act, but in the church today, that's an anomaly. That's not something we see that often. That's why when a guy like Robertson McQuilkin makes a sacrifice, which I believe is basically normal Christianity, he's exalted because of that, because the rest of us would go, I don't know, I don't know if I could do that. Sold her possessions in good and divided them among all as anyone had need. I've asked myself this question, how much faith would it take for me to live like that? And I came to the conclusion that all my answers don't have to do with you. Can I trust you enough to honor my money because I know I'll honor your money if we all kind of put it together? But that's not where the faith comes. That's not the issue. The issue, the, the issue isn't how much we trust each other. The issue is how much we trust Christ. How much we trust him? He didn't say that if you live like this, I will make them treat you honorably. He says if you seek him first 
and his righteousness and his kingdom that he will take care of all of your needs. And it's up to him to determine how to do that. And then it dawned on me that it would almost be easier to live this way if we were suffering persecution or we didn't have so much stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys that like to declutter. I mean, threw away on my high school annuals because I ain't even going back. You know, just kind of crazy stuff. And I have a barn full of stuff up, up here, which is supposed to be a youth room at some point in time. You can't even walk in there. Where's all that come from? You know, I mean, it's, it's just stuff. And we keep adding stuff to it. Maybe I didn't have so much stuff that uh, I wouldn't mind giving some of it away. So here's how the church functioned because of this. It says, so continuing daily with one accord still of unanimous consent in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart because their food was a gift to them. I remember when Karen and I were in seminary and uh, we decided to go on this little self-imposed mission trip. Had three kids at the time and we sold every possession that we had and um, uh, a couple, uh, Chris and Edith Howe, sold the house that they had, and the, he was a seminary student with me, all the possessions that they had, and pulled our money together. We bought a 34-foot travel trailer and a van, and we decided to start at Wilmington, North Carolina, and walk west. And the idea was that we were going to just teach ourselves evangelism, and the commitment was that every person that we met, we were going to share Jesus with them, no matter who it was. And so we started at the beach and walked west, and our families, we'd park in a, like a um, state, I forget what they were called, state campgrounds, and, and you know, we, they'd drop us off, and they'd pick us up at 5 o'clock or 5.30, and, you know, we just kind of moved on down the road, and, I mean, it was a, it was a, uh, it was an amazing experience, and when all that was over, and it was, where it was finished, uh, I had $200 to my name, no job, no place to live, and an $800 car that I didn't think I would make it Pigeon Force, Tennessee. Three kids. My dad said, you can come live with us. We've got a spare bedroom. So we drove to Pigeon Forge and, and up in Gatlinburg, actually, and lived with my dad. And I tried to get a job working at a, uh, a hotel and, you know, doing accounting work for them. We finally were able to move out after what seemed like forever and rented this $325 a month duplex, which like $325 a month is like what I made in two weeks. You know, it was just, it was really, really tough. And, and and it was in the, we had no furniture. We, I remember I had 20 bucks to set up house. We went to Walmart, and for a dollar, you got these five big plastic cups, and we bought some plastic plates and everything. We just set up house. People would come by and give us the, the most horrific-looking furniture you had ever seen. We got a really nice sofa because somebody's grandmother died on it, and they didn't want the house anymore. I don't care who died on it. Just bring it to my house. And, and it was an amazing thing. And, and I remember somebody would come by, and they would say stuff like, uh, hey, you know, I don't know if you, know, you need it or not, but you know, I got half a ham. We can't eat it all. Would you like it? Sure. We get this ham, and then all of a sudden I get a call from some guy. I don't even know how he knew me. Some guy that worked at a hotel and says, hey, there's some people down here that need a place to stay. I heard you're a minister. Why don't you let them stay with you? <sighs> okay, so we go down there, pick those people up, and bring them to our house. And then he, <laughs> this, this guy had left his home, I don't know where it was, he was going to Nashville because he was going to be a professional whistler. You know, he could whistle really good, be a professional whistler. I've had some bad ideas. This was a really bad idea. And so, uh, but they had no food, and we had a ham. You know, so we gave him the ham. I mean, it was God worked 
Just little things like that. And it filled our hearts with just joy and gladness to see him working in just the most minute things. You know, if I had plenty of money and a $20,000 credit card and all that kind of stuff, and I lived like I do now, it's no big deal. We'll go to the grocery store, I'll buy it for you. It's no big deal. It'll be fine. But back then it was, it was incredible. And I think that's what's happening here. They broke bread from house to house. How did God provide this today? Oh, let me tell you what happened. Like George Mueller every single day. And they're excited and praising God. And they have this sincerity, this purity of intention, this simplicity of heart. Because we're all in this together. We've all sacrificed for Christ. You know, all for one, one for all. Nobody's holding back. Only people who held back were Ananias and Sapphira in a couple chapters. And you know what happened to them. And what did God do? They were praising God and having favor with all the people lost and saved. And as a result, the Lord was adding to their church daily those who were being saved. So I'm sitting here and I'm studying this for the sermon Sunday that we never got to. And the Lord asked me and goes, is it worth it to you to see people saved daily? Well, what do you mean? If you could live like this, assuming, assuming, and I'm not saying there's a connection here, but assuming that there's a connection between this kind of life and seeing God save people daily, would it be worth it to you to see people saved daily for you to live like this? And my answer was, probably not. Probably not. I mean, God, you're sovereign, and you hide behind the sovereignty of God and all that kind of stuff, but... But that that kind of hits you where it hurts, doesn't it? It Kind of hits you where, wow, um, do I really care about lost people that much? Well, I say I do. Well, what if it meant sacrificing everything you have to see me move in their lives? Do you still care about them that much? That'll hit you where it hurts, doesn't it? Does the thought of seeing people saved daily overcome your fear of sharing your stuff with others? Well, yeah, if I don't have my stuff. I got a lot of stuff, fear's greater. Why? Can't take any of it with us. If not, that's what the Lord was telling me. What does it say about the focus in your life? What would it take for us to live like Christ lived? And I want you to know that this was not a one-time thing, because by the time we get to chapter four, it's still going on. Persecution has taken place, church has prayed, yet it's still going on. Look what it says in Acts chapter four. Now there was now, nor was there anyone among them who lacked anything. Why? For all who are possessors of lands and houses. This is a little bit different than emptying my wallet. This is selling my security. Of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of these things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one, to each as anyone had need. And so I've asked myself, and I want you to listen very carefully here. I've asked myself why we can't live like this today. Number one, because we don't want to. We don't. I mean, if I had a choice, I'd rather not. I think I would rather join something that's already been in existence for a while, you know, that I can go in there and I I see this thing work, so okay, I'll kind of get involved, put a little foot in, see how it works, but, but to actually just live like this straight up and sacrifice everything and Maybe lose it all, and uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it really wasn't. And I mean, How could we live like the early church did and see God move like this? And I came to the conclusion that they have something that, um, that we don't. 
I started doing some research about church groups in communist China and in India and Pakistan and some other places, and I realized that the key element for people being this committed to each other is something that, um, I've done this verse, something that uh, we don't have happen in our nation, and it's called persecution. All these people were being persecuted. All these people had lost everything for the cause of Christ. You know, the, the guys that lived in Rome, they were now living in Jerusalem. Whatever position they had at Rome, you know, they, they were now living in Jerusalem. And if they ever went back to Rome, they'd go back as a missionary, and they would catch all sorts of flack from their friends by coming and being light and darkness. I mean, everybody who was there was all in. The disciples had lived that way for three and a half years, and, and now all of a sudden the, they're, they're there. I mean, if you remember, Jesus had no possessions. When he, when he was going to make the point about whose image is on a coin, he asked somebody for a coin. Do you remember that? Somebody, uh, give me a denarius. Anybody got one? Because I don't. Yeah, I think I got one. What does it say? Okay, thank you. Whose uh, image is this? Well, it's Caesar. They're written under Caesar. What Caesar's and God under God? There you go. I mean, hung on the cross. All he had was a seamless tunic that they prophetically gambled for. But they suffered persecution. We don't suffer persecution. Becoming a Christian costs us nothing. I mean, it costs us some of our bad habits, but we can still do those bad habits and you know, nobody says anything about it. If you get drunk and get a DUI, somebody will say you shouldn't do that as a Christian, but if you drink socially, people, they don't really care. You know, if you, if you cussed before, if you cuss in front of a Christian, they'll say, man, you don't need to cuss like that, but nobody polices you when you're at work. I mean, if you watch sexual slasher movies before you got saved, you can still watch sexual slasher movies or porn at home, and nobody polices you and tells you you can't really do that because we've developed this you know, kind of tolerance kind of thing. You don't talk about my sin, I don't talk about yours, and it's really going to be okay because coming to Christ didn't cost us anything. We had the same jobs. Living in the South is kind of esteemed. You know, well, I'm a believer. Well, I'm a believer. I go to this church. Why well, go to that church? I go to Parkwood. I go to, to Bethlehem. I go to this church over here. Oh, well, this is kind of cool. We kind of bond together and feel like friends, play golf together. Not for these guys. I mean, they were under persecution from day one. It cost them everything. And if we were all together and coming to Christ cost us everything, we would love each other more. We would defend each other more. We would... We would encourage each other more. We would support each other more. I would be there for you, and you would be there for me, and I would sacrifice for you, and you would be sacrificed for me because we'd really be a family because we had to be a family because the enemy out there wanted to destroy us all. But we've never known that in the West. We've never known that in the church. And it dawned on me that maybe we ought to pray for persecution. We pray for those who are persecuted and we always pray that the persecution will go away. But maybe we ought to pray for persecution. God, why don't you pour it on your church? Why don't you let the government just hammer us? Take away the tax-exempt status and make us just a byword and do what's ever necessary to, to form us into the kind of body and the kind of Christ followers that you want us to be. If it's true that persecution makes us love him more, that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, then Lord, test our faith. Give us a disease that we can't handle. or Just put us in a situation where we can do nothing but just look to you to meet those needs. And that sounds really good coming from the pulpit. But when we're finished and I go home, 
Do I really want that in my own life? I mean, that almost sounds sadomasochistic, doesn't it? But if persecution took place, I mean, Tertullian said that the church was built on the blood of the martyrs. Do you remember that? The church in China flourished under persecution. The church in Romania flourished under the, the persecution of Chichowski. We, as the church, just accommodate the culture. Maybe, God, maybe we need a... Maybe we need a good dose of judgment. Maybe we need persecution to take place. Maybe we need to have our faith tested to the point of seeing whether or not we truly believe what we claim we believe. So I don't know. I don't know. I see the way they lived here. I see the way George Mueller lived voluntarily, and I just, I'm awed at that. I see the faith that Corey Tin Boone had, not while she was making watches in her father's watchmaker's house, but when she was in Ravensbrück uh, Nazi prisoner of war camp, that's when her faith flourished, when Betsy, her sister, died. I see what persecution does for the Christian. And if our goal, if our big goal is to bear fruit for Christ, be conformed to the image of Christ, to, to bear on our bodies the brand marks of Christ, then maybe our prayers ought to change. Maybe we ought to pray, come on, we ought to load it up. Whatever Whatever you want to come my way, even though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Amen? Let me pray.